Suspend your disbelief. Let yourself be led down a path into the world of the paranormal, where ghosts, shadow people, cryptids, aliens, and all things supernatural dominate. Immerse yourself in a dimension of ominous trepidation with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Welcome to the Phantom Faction Podcast. Welcome to this edition of Phantom Faction Podcast. I'm Danny. I'm Dan. And I'm Rachel. And we are via Zoom, and we are sponsored by... RampageCoffee.com. Kind of our first time doing the, uh, the Zoom thing. And all four of us, well, three of us and our guests are separate. I mean, usually our guests are, are not in person anyway, but uh, the three of us the three of us are usually huddled together at uh, Rachel's dining room table. But because of COVID and the weather changing and all this other fun stuff, here we are. <laughs> the miracles of technology right and uh, i don't i don't have to drive 40 minutes all the time anymore do i <laughs> that's right so. we we have a uh, a fine guest with us uh today joining us on, on zoom and he's an author as well as a podcast host as well mm-hmm. and we, we'd like to welcome uh brennan star how you doing brennan i'm doing all right how are you doing good um you have a uh, a book that is called strange little place is that correct it is, yeah. A Strange Little Place, The Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town. All right. And uh, these, I take it, is a, a true fact story? It is, yeah. It's, uh, it is, the way I describe it is a paranormal history of my small hometown in Western Canada. Wow. Can we mention the town? Absolutely, yeah. The town is uh, Revelstoke, and it is in eastern British Columbia. So if you are passingly familiar with the geography of the area, it's about halfway not quite, but I, I, it's easier to say about halfway between Calgary and Vancouver. And uh, also a podcast host, um, Ghost Story Guys, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, Ghost Story Guys with uh, with Ian Gibbs. We've been doing that for coming up on four years now, I guess. All right, so definitely uh, a strong uh, a belief in the paranormal. Yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't always that way, but certainly uh, over the years I've, I've come around to it. When I started writing Strange back in 2012, uh, because I don't do these things quickly. Um, I, I was very much, uh, I was I was very close to being an atheist. You know, I, I grew up Catholic, but it didn't take, and I developed a real aversion to any of that stuff. And my my take on the world was that whatever you see is what you get, and there's nothing beyond that. And then, uh, the go, and the go, pardon me, and the ghost stories were really just kind of an entertaining thing to tell at parties. But mm-hmm. then when I started researching the book, which, was originally just intended to be a family history project. Uh, a couple things happened and they really shook my worldview and I started uh, opening up to some possibilities and yeah, you know, eight years later and uh, say four years of the show en- enough has happened that I, I just think you can't, you can't ignore these things anymore or I, I can't at least. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about some of these experiences that you experienced? Oh, sure. Yeah. So probably the most dramatic one, pardon me, most dramatic ones were my encounters with shadow people. And I, at the time, I didn't even know what a shadow person was. You understand me? I'm coming at this from a place of, if not near total ignorance, close to it. You know, it it was, uh, yeah, I I was pretty dumb. But I had come back from my first research trip to Revelstoke because I've lived on the coast now for about 13 years. And I was telling a receptionist at work uh, at the time I was working for the small consulting company, I was telling her about some of the stories I'd heard. And it was a, it was a lovely April morning. It was nice and bright. 
but we were the only two people in the office. And as I stood there speaking to her, telling her, you know, oh, I heard this and I heard that out of the corner of my eye in the office to my right, I saw what appeared to be an all black head peek out from behind a coat rack very slowly, just lowered out and then went back. And it was almost like it stayed there just long enough for me to really clock it. Mm-hmm. And then it went back and I'll never forget this feeling of panic that's sitting. It was this really cold feeling of panic. And I just, the color started to wash out of the day and I really started to, to lose my, uh, uh I don't know if I can swear here. I, I started to lose it. And I, I really had to clamp down hard and kind of say to myself, Nope, you didn't see that. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And, and that worked, that worked well enough then, but uh, about a week later I was at home and my wife, I like to say has grown up jobs. So she has to be up at reasonable hours. I'm more of a, a bit more feral that way. And so I woke up at, I believe it was eight in the morning. And I know this because I, I rolled over and saw the clock on her side of the bed and she, she was gone to work. So I lay there for a moment. And again, by this time it was May, a beautiful May morning. The blinds were open, sun streaming through. And I realized that there was someone standing just to my left. I just make them out of the corner of my eye. And I remember thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. You, you know, there's a, there's a night table there. How the hell can someone be standing there? So I turned to look. And as I did, I saw what appeared to be a shadow in the shape of a person. And before I could even react to that, it fell across me in the bed. And when it hit me, I remember getting this electrical feeling all throughout my body, like uh, like a live wire. And I passed out. And I woke up about half an hour later and I thought, okay, well, that was, that was strange, but that marked the beginning of the worst period of depression I had experienced since high school. And I mean, when I was a kid, I, I struggled with depression, although we didn't really know that it was that at the time, of course, you know, it didn't really have a name necessarily, but, uh, but it was, it was absolutely something I struggled with. And I went through this bleak period of depression, which culminated in uh, quite a, a, an ugly argument with my wife that I provoked. And, and that's not something I do. I'm not a, I'm not, I don't like getting into fights with people. I just, you know, I will if I have to, but it's not something I seek out. And yeah, it, it was almost like popping a boil because whatever this, this Paul was that had hung over me for the last two weeks after that argument, it was gone. And uh, I was quite mystified. And that is those are probably the two most dramatic experiences. Um, and <laughs> they kind of culminated in something that happened a year later. And I like to call it my accidental exorcism. I'm, I don't know if you want to hear that particular story. Of course. Okay. So <laughs> about a year later, I was over in Vancouver. I, I live on Vancouver Island, which is about a, a two hour boat ride away from the city itself. So I was over in Vancouver for a series of concerts and I, one of them, uh, I was joined by my wife and a friend, and then they had to go back to the mainland, or sorry, they had to go back to the island, rather. And so I stayed on the mainland for two more shows across three more nights, which meant I had a night of downtime. One of those nights was a Sunday. And at the time, I was renting a room in someone's house uh, using sort of a very early uh, Airbnb uh, knockoff. And so I decided to take my book and go down to the Starbucks uh, a little ways down the road and just read just enjoy myself and read. So as I stepped out of the house, I heard a voice say, hello there. And so I turned to look and there was an elderly uh, First Nations gentleman 
uh, indigenous gentleman standing there and he looked like he was in pretty rough shape. Uh, what I remember of him, I, I don't remember the clothes much anymore, but they were beat up and he had this real beat up old gym bag over his left shoulder. And the thing I remember most strongly was that in his right hand, he had a wooden walking stick with orange electrical tape wound around the bottom. And I said, Hey, how you doing? And he said, well, I'm not too bad, but I could do with a coffee as I travel along here in my voyage or along my way. And apart from that, I'm, I'm okay. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going that direction anyways. Walk with me. I'll get you a coffee. And, you know, what the hell. So he, he walked with me. And now um, I've done this before. You know, I, I talked to homeless guys, which I assumed he was, and things like this. So I, I kind of expected him to keep mum until we got to the coffee shop. But no, he actually introduced himself. You know, I, 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 mean, I did first. I said, my name is Brennan. Uh, what's yours? And he said, oh, my, my, name is, my name is Dennis. I said, oh, okay. And he said, uh, would you like to know my spirit name? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So he told me. And he said, would you like to know yours? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. When we get to the coffee shop, I'll ask. Because not everyone has one. So I said, oh, sure. Okay, yeah, well, let's do that. So we got to the coffee shop. And again, I've, I've been down this road before. And typically when I buy coffee for homeless guy or, you know, back before the world stopped when I did that, um, you know, they, you buy them a coffee and then they might ask for something sweet. And then if you give in on that, uh, maybe they ask for a pack of smokes. It, it depends. It varies person to person, but you know, there, there is a template. Uh, but instead of any of that, he just told me I'll have what you're having, uh, two cream, one sugar, and I'll go get us a table. Which he did. He found us a table out in front of the uh, in front of the coffee shop. Now, again, I, as I tell you the rest of the story, bear in mind this is happening in front of a very busy Starbucks on Davie Street in Vancouver at about uh, seven o'clock on a Sunday night in the in the spring. So this is this is not a private place. This is happening. So I go out and sit down, and uh, we have a conversation. And through the course of the conversation, he tells me. Or rather, he takes a moment and he sees if I have a spirit name, which apparently I do. And he explains it to me. And it, it was a fairly accurate summation of my personality, I will say. Uh, the name was the Stone Buffalo. I, I won't go into the uh, I won't go into the whys of it, but it was it was you know fairly accurate. And he tells me he's a shaman. And he said he's been a shaman since he was 16 years old, and that <laughs> altergeist, or that, or that. <laughs> We're actually pretty lucky. My old building was was fairly haunted. This one's not too bad. We get we get pass throughs sometimes, but there's nothing resident. But um, but yeah. So anyways, he tells me that uh, he's yeah he's been a shaman since he was 16 years old. And he tells me he says I'm an alcoholic. He said I, you know you should know that about me. I own that. And certainly he had this twitch to him, this sort of neuro I assume a neurological condition where he would his face would sort of spasm at, at, at times. But regardless, he was a very friendly fellow, very smart and. Uh, Finally, after, you know, a fair bit of this conversation, I kind of thought, you know, I, I bet I can ask this guy some, like, some advice. And that's not something I, I do very often. But I, I told him those stories that I just told you about those shadows. And I said, do you have any idea what that might have been? And he looked concerned for probably the first time during the conversation. He looked genuinely concerned. And he said, I don't know why you're having these dreams, but we can try and find out. And I said, well, no, no, they, they weren't dreams. These happened when I was awake. And he put up his hand and he said, no, no, no. It's better if we call them dreams for now. So I said, oh, okay, sure. So he reaches into his gym bag and he takes out uh, a 
per a translucent purple plastic recorder, like a little kid would play. And he blows the same note on it about 15 times. He kind of looks around, shakes his head, and he puts it back in his bag. And then he pulls out this um, plastic maraca. And uh, I remember it, it, it was gray with Olmeca tequila on the side in faded lettering. And uh, I remember thinking if this was, you know, some suburban shaman, that thing would be handmade. It would cost $3,000. Uh, but no, this is this thing that obviously had come with like a liquor gift set. And he shakes it a few times and he, he made this kind of sing-songy noise. And he looked around and he shook his head. And then I heard him say something about the doctor. But before I could get any clarity on that, he stood up and walked off. So at this point, I thought, oh, okay, are we, are we done? But I figured I'd wait because he left his stuff behind. And a couple minutes later, he comes back with something in his hand. Now, before I had even a moment to react to this, he shoves what was in his hand in my mouth. And it, hmm. was, plant, it was planty. It was kind of planty stuff. And I recognized the, the, the taste, but I, but I couldn't place it. And he says, chew that and swallow it down. So now, of course, I'm at a crossroads. I'm at a point in my life when I can do one of two things. I can go, we're done here, old man, and hit the bricks. Or I chew the stuff and see what happens. I chewed the stuff. So, chew the stuff, swallow it. And he says, did you swallow it all? And I said, yes. He goes, okay. And then he puts some in his own mouth, chews it. And then, bear in mind, this is happening, busy Starbucks, Sunday evening. He grabs my head, pulls it forward, and blows on the top of my head. And I remember thinking, oh, gross, did he just spit some of that stuff on my head? Uh, he didn't, by the way. But then he grabs, he pulls my head a little further. And he goes, blows again on the nape of my neck this time. And then he pulls me a little bit forward even more and does the same thing all the way down my spine. Sits me back up and says, okay, you're good. And he sits down. I said, what, what do you mean I'm good? And as I sat there wondering exactly what the hell it is he's talking about, I felt this strange feeling come over me. It started in my hands and it was like the hands didn't belong to me. It was like they belonged to someone else and I was giving them suggestions to move. They were moving sort of, you know, they chose whether or not they were going to obey me. And I started to freak out. I, st I don't mind telling you, I started to freak out hard. And it was almost like he could hear me thinking because he just went, calm down. It's going to be okay. Just relax. But I could not relax. And I remember thinking, okay, so if I throw some of this stuff up, St. Paul Hos Paul's Hospital is not too far away. They might know how to treat whatever the hell it is I've done to myself. Um, and again, as though he could, as though he could hear me fretting, he said, just, just relax. It'll pass. I told him, I said, Dennis, I think you poisoned me. He said, no, you didn't poison. I didn't poison you. Just relax. I said, I feel like if I try to stand up, I'll just fall over. And he said, you won't stand up. You'll see. But I was solid. So finally I just sat and eventually the feeling faded. And he said, how are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm okay, actually. It's, it's gone. He goes, okay, good. We're done here. And he said, uh, I'm going to go have a drink. He grabbed his bag. He slung it over his shoulder and he stood up. And I said, oh, well, what was that? And, uh, or pardon me, I said, thank you. And he said, oh, well, he said, you gave me a gift. And he points to the coffee. He says, this is my gift to you. And he said, you had the wrong spirit in you. And what you felt was me 
I, I removed it and what you felt was the new spirit settling in. And I, I didn't know what to say to that. And he said to me, he said, uh, your life will change now. And he said, I'm very sorry for that. He said, I, uh, I couldn't give you a choice. This had to be done. This is not something I could, I could kind of walk away from. So your life will change. It won't be bad. I promise you it won't be bad, but it will change. And for that, I apologize just because I couldn't give you, I couldn't give you a choice. And I said, okay, well, I don't know what that means, but thank you. And he waved and he walked away and, and that was the last I saw of him. But I didn't know what the hell to do. And people were staring. They were staring. <laughs> no kidding. So I grabbed my book and I walked back to the room, called my wife, told her what happened. And she said, well, you seem like you're okay. So chalk it up to experience, I guess. And after a couple hours of reading in my room, I thought, you know what? I'm hungry. That's probably why that hit me so hard. I've barely eaten today. I'm going to go down to my favorite burger joint, get a big stinky burger and a Coke and just, in, just enjoy myself, live my best life. So I stepped outside of the house and the second, uh, maybe a couple seconds after I stepped outside of the house, a car passed in the street, not close, not going fast, but I lost my mind. I started panicking and I realized I was afraid of the car, which is not a thing that has ever concerned me before. And I realized I could hear everything. I was overwhelmed by noise. I didn't understand what the hell was happening, but I was just overwhelmed by sound. And it was though visually, like I had been looking at the world through a window and someone had taken the glass out of that window. The colors are so vibrant. And I, I just panicked. And I remember thinking, Jesus, if, if he took my love of cities out of me, I'm going to be unhappy. But uh, anyways, I managed to get it under control. I crossed the street. But then I remember looking up Davy Street and the Sandman Hotel in, or, pardon me, Sandman Inn in Suites is, is a little further north. And it has this enormous green sign on the side of the building. And the sight of that thing so high up in the air and so bright at nighttime brought the fear right back. Couldn't get it under control. I couldn't understand why I was afraid. I've been to that building. I've, I've stayed in that building, but I was just terrified. So again, get it under control, go to the burger joint, order my food. It arrives. And this is when things got really weird because I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, objectively, I understood that is a, you know, I think it's a Frank's burger or something. It's a double burger. It's, it's lovely. And there's a Coke with it. But I still didn't, I don't know. It was like there was this disconnect between the two halves of my brain. So I broke a little piece of the burger off and I ate it. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, food. Yeah, that's fine. So I ate about half of it and and drank about half the Coke. And I was kind of done. And I, I something I forgot to mention before, uh, before I move on was Dennis said to me, he said, did you ever wonder why your belly swells? And I, I've always been kind of a hefty guy, but I was, I was heftier then. And I said, well, I assume because I eat too much and I don't exercise. And he gave me this look. He said, yes. But he said, that also happens when you have the wrong spirit in you. He said, that, that will change now. Your belly will shrink. And certainly I've lost a lot of weight since then. I mean, I don't know if that's down to spirituality or me just, you know, eating better. But, uh, but yeah. And ever since then, some nights that feeling comes back, that feeling like the glass is out of the window and everything's just that much brighter and you feel that much closer to things. And after that, I had one more experience with shadow people and it happened uh, here in Victoria and I, I, to, to fully explain 
uh, th that would take a lot longer, I think, than we have. But the, the, the short version of it is this time the shadow couldn't get anywhere near me. It stood probably five feet away, cocking its head from one side to another like it was trying to figure something out. But it couldn't get any closer than that. So I don't know if that process somehow plugged a hole in whatever defense it is, defenses it is I have, but it, it did seem to make a difference. So those are a couple of my, my personal experiences. So Brendan, um, it sounds like this, this spirit that entered you, you know, this good spirit or this positive one, right. um, seemed like it was, you know, not familiar with, uh, cars and lights and, and strange noises and weird food. Is that, is that the, is that where you kind of take that from or? I, I guess, yeah. I mean, all I know is sort of what I felt. I mean, in terms of ascribing like a greater value to it, you know, it's a spirit that doesn't understand these things. I, I can't really speak to that. All I know is that for a brief period, um, I, I, I was afraid of those things. And since but, then, I have a fear of heights, which I did not have before. Huh. When, when did this, how long did the sensations last? Like after you left the burger place? Oh, uh, they went almost immediately. I mean, uh, yeah, I want to say they lasted until I got back to my room and kind of once, once I was there, all the sensory stuff, you know, it was just a room. So it kind of went away. And then the, by the next morning, everything was normal. And it never returned. Uh, I mean, it has, as I said, the, the feeling of, um, connection, like, like the, everything is brighter and somehow more there that comes back sometimes at night. Uh, if I'm out and about, I'm, I'm very much a nocturnal person, but, um, not like it, uh, not n never quite as vibrantly as them. Hmm. Have you ever tried to find uh, the shaman again? I haven't. No, I, uh, I mean, again, that was over in Vancouver and I, I wouldn't even know how to begin looking for him. Um, I, I think he's just one of those guys. If, if you know, you, you're meant to run into him and if you make the right choice, then you can offer each other something. And I think we did, you know, hmm. again, I don't know what it is I gave him aside from a coffee, but he certainly seems to have, uh, done right by me. I mean, that story, I've, I've told that story to a lot of people now. So it's, it's done very well for me. Well, sounds, sounds like you'd be an interesting guy to have on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, do you think, uh, Brennan, that it was possibly fate that you had to meet this guy? I think it's very possible. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's maybe if we were to say it was fate, I think it was fate to meet him. And I think the choices I made as to what I was going to take away from that were up to me. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I, I kind of think on a larger scale, that's how these things work. I think fate can put you in a place, but I think it's up to you to be prepared for that moment and to sort of take what you can out of it. You know, we, we used to record the podcast in a very haunted building, a very deeply haunted building. And I worked in that place for seven, eight years. You know, it was an office that I also worked in and we just were lucky enough. They let us use the, uh, they let us put the, a little mini studio in there, but, um, I worked there seven, eight years, and it took a listener to the sh of the show to suggest that maybe we needed to reach out to whatever was in the building and try and achieve a sort of equilibrium with it. And once we did, um, I want to say we lost the office a month later, three weeks later. Right. And it, it was a blow because, hey, you know, who doesn't want to have their own private studio? But at the same time, the show has only improved since then. You know, and it, it forced us out of our comfort zone and we ended up having to meet some people and, and make some moves and, and it's been very good for us. But um, it's almost like the building was was a, a challenge we had to overcome. You know, we had to figure out how to get around it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to just go back uh, to the Starbucks 
uh, yeah. for, for a second. When, when he got up and he left, did you, did you notice where he went? Like, did he go into the washroom or did he go outside or? He just walked away south down Davie Street. Davie Street kind of runs, well, maybe, is it south? Yeah, I want to say Davie Street runs north-south. Okay, so he actually left the building and... We were sitting at a table out front, so we were on the street the whole time. Oh, okay. So, so he, he, might, uh, he might have had a little secret stash of whatever this was somewhere on this, hidden in the street. Well, I, I actually managed to figure out what it was. It was juniper. And um, there oh. were juniper bushes around the corner. So he obviously went and sought this out. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And, uh, I, there are two, apparently two kinds of juniper. I think there's a tree in the bush and one of them is toxic. The other is not. This was the non-toxic one. <laughs> well, thank, well, thank God. Thank God he gave you the right one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I assume he knew what he was doing. Either that or I got very lucky. So Brennan, this, uh, this little town that you grew up in, uh, where your book uh, begins, I guess, uh, uh, called A Strange Little Place. I have read the book. I purchased it quite a while ago, trying to remember, you know, some of the stories. Uh, and I've read so many books since then. So like, oh, like, I, I, email, no doubt. like, like I emailed you before, I, I try to keep the stories in my head uh, to, the, to the right book. But sometimes that's, that's tough because my memory is shot. <laughs> hey, man, I wrote the thing and I had to brush up before I came on there. So Oh, for sure. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> Do you almost consider this this town, Revelstoke, do you almost consider it to be uh, like a hotspot for paranormal activity, like like a Skinwalker Ranch type area? Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that a lot of places, you know, if you spend time looking at them, you will find these things, you know, or certain kinds of things. You know, the more you look at a, at a thing, the more you learn about it. And certainly small towns are always, I shouldn't say always, but quite often full of uh, more secrets than you'd, than you'd expect. But I do think there is something particularly unique about Revelstoke. And based on conversations I've had with people who know a hell of a lot more than I do since then, uh, that, they, that seems to have been confirmed. I know uh, one interview I did a couple years ago, the psychic I was on air with suggested that Revelstoke, uh, her, her conception of it was like a screen door, but the holes in the screen door are much bigger than they should be. There's almost like a vortex or a portal there. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it has to do with the Columbia River. I think because um, it, it, it's right alongside the Columbia River. And I, I, I have a theory, some of it I, I can't go into on air uh, for various reasons, but I do have a theory that something lives in the river valley south of the city. Uh, and I think it, um, and I, I don't think it's just in the Revelstoke area. I think it sort of roams over a larger area. But uh, there are certain uh, legends, I think it started in Tibet, of a, of a thing called Za, which guards the veil between worlds. And it's, it's said to be a, a serpent, or a, made of many serpents, a many-eyed serpent. And uh, they live in, in river valleys and the places where, where rivers combine. And Revelstoke is not only in a deep river valley, it's also where the Columbia and Illicilouette rivers combine. A lot of energy, a lot of energy for uh, spirits to feed off of as well, right? Yeah, very much so. And the, the town itself is also uh, threaded quite significantly underneath it with streams, I, I'm told. So other than the, uh, the hauntings and the paranormal activity, what are the kind of uh, strange things happen in, in the area? Well, I mean, it really runs the gamut. I mean, we, there are a number of UFO encounters going back at least as far as the fifties, uh, south of town is what's called the arrow or you know, what's called the arrow lake region. And that is now one lake. It used to be two, but, uh, when the U S started putting pressure on Canada to dam the Columbia river in the 1960s, those lakes uh, flooded and became one lake. And along with the lakes flooding, a number of small rural communities were also flooded. 
Uh, most of them are relocated first, but they were flooded. And the earliest recording, uh, yeah, I want to say the earliest record I found of a UFO sighting came from a community called Sidmouth, which was just south of Revelstoke in, sometime in the 1950s. And it was actually, the reporting of it made it as far as the Vancouver paper. And Vancouver was the largest city uh, in, in the area at the time, about seven hours to the west, a longer back then. But uh, for it to make the Vancouver news was significant. And that was described as a blue light globe swinging to and fro in the sky. And that was observed by a mining crew. So the Revelstoke. Uh, and then from there, I managed to find, unfortunately, only a partial story. But someone was out hanging their laundry, also in Sidmouth, and they spied what appeared to be a silver disc flying overhead. And uh, those stories, if you get close to Revelstoke, there are even more stories. I mean, uh, I actually found in my research that Revelstoke turned up in a John Keel book, of all places, in 1970s Operation Trojan Horse. Uh, we are referenced, uh, he found, he was contacted by an experiencer named Harold Howery who saw with his wife, I want to say in the 60s, but don't quote me on that. They were driving on the highway. Uh, he believed it was west of the city. But they were approached by what appeared to be something vaguely cloud-like, roughly the size of their vehicle, and it paced them above them as they drove. They slowed down, it would slow down. They sped up, it would speed up. And then as they were driving watching this cloud above them, they, they saw lights coming ahead, realized it was another vehicle, but as the vehicle passed them, it disappeared. <laughs> and uh, again, that's just a, one example. A another example I'm quite uh, interested in is uh, an, a, pardon me, a report of missing time from the highway east of Revelstoke. Uh, and but before I get there, I should, I should give you a sense of where Revelstoke is. Revelstoke is an isolated place. Uh, there are four roads leading in and out of town, north, south, east, west. North ends in a dam, or north goes through about two and a half hours of woods and then ends in a dam. Uh, south ends in, a, ends in a, a ferry terminal after about 40 minutes. And in that ferry terminal, it takes about 15, 20 minutes to get, maybe even half an hour to get across on a, a small um, boat, a uh, small car ferry. The road west runs about 45 minutes before you reach the next town. And the road east runs about 90 minutes before you reach the next town. So, and those roads can be closed by uh, avalanches in the winter and by mudslides in the summer. So, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I remember one time I went to go see a, a drive-in movie with a friend a couple towns over. And we ended up having to sleep in the car uh, because both roads home were closed by a mudslide uh, on the way as we were watching the movie. And uh, then the next morning, uh, we just got home before uh, slide closed the remaining um, the remaining road west. Or sorry, west? Yeah, the remaining road west. And there were, I want to say, over 100 semi-trucks backed up along the spine of town just waiting for the highway to open. Gas stations were running out of gas. Uh, yeah, it can be, it can be, you know, it can be a, a cut-off little place. So uh, why the hell does anybody live there? An excellent, an excellent question. You know, like between the paranormal stuff and the and you know Mother Nature trying to kill you all the time, and the and the isolation, it it seems like a, a place that would end up being you know quite ab abandoned or or uh, depopulated. Well, it's right on the main highway. You know, we have uh, Canada has the one major highway. The it's called Highway One, the Trans Canada. Yep, and that runs from coast to coast. And so, uh, Revelstoke is right on it. And also, oh, okay. um, it's got a, a 
a pretty thriving, uh, not not as much as it was, but thriving forestry industry. Uh, the ski hill is, I think, got the the largest or second largest vertical drop in North America. So it's it's very popular with international visitors. And uh, for a long time, the railroad, because we're right on the railroad. So there used to be a really thriving uh, group of railroaders there too. That There are still railroaders, but it's not quite the hub it once was. It was That was moved right. to a yard further east. But um, but as I was saying, the uh, the road east is, it's quite a ways before you get to another town. And you have to go through what's called Rogers Pass. And Rogers Pass is, um, it's, just a, it's just a highway now. But it didn't open until 1962. Once upon a time, if you wanted to go east, you had to take what's called the, um, well, I can't remember, the, uh, I want to say the Big Bend Highway. And that was a six-hour ride. Instead of 90 minutes, that was six hours uh, through the Selkirk Mountains. And there's actually an anecdotal report of a Bigfoot being hit by a car along that highway. Well, I was just about to ask you about the Sasquatch reports, if there was any. Yeah, yeah there are. I can touch on those in a sec. Uh, but the... Um, Rogers Pass has been the site of more than 200 avalanche-related deaths prior to the opening of the railway there in 1911, I think. Holy cow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a treacherous place. And so there is a report of missing time from that highway. A fellow was, he, I think he may have been a trucker. Uh, it's hard to tell from the report. I wasn't able to contact the man. I was sort of going off secondary reports, but he lost probably close to two hours and cannot recall passing through the pass itself. He, he can't recall the gas stations. All he knows is he was driving and he expected the road to start trending up towards the summit, but instead it started going down and he passed a sign that said, you know, Revelstoke in 15 miles. And he realized about, yeah, about, I want to say an hour's worth of driving was just gone. And according to the clock on the dash, he'd lost two hours worth of time. Wow. And he didn't think too much of it at, at the time, but what eventually happened is he started having nightmares. And in those nightmares, he's driving that road and he sees ahead of him a truck going around a corner. And this did happen. He did see the taillights of a vehicle disappear around the bend. And when he went around that bend, that's when he had the feeling of disorientation because the road was going down and not up. In the dream, those lights, those taillights disappear around the corner and then they come back and they cover his truck. And he can't see what's causing it. He's just bathed in this red light and there's this pressure on his chest. And then he wakes up. But ever since then, again, according to his story, he has not been able to drive that highway alone. It has completely messed with his livelihood. He has to take what's called the Crow's Nest Highway, which is a significant increase in time. But he cannot drive Rogers Pass alone anymore. Hmm. Are, are there any other reports of uh, time lost from other people? No, no missing time I was able to locate. Uh, okay. There is one other pretty substantial UFO encounter from that highway. Um, it was actually, trying to dig that one out was the, uh, the only time I was threatened writing this book. <laughs> but uh, this group of railroaders during a, a, a changeover, a, a crew change in the tunnel at one of the stations, or sorry, not in the tunnel, in, in, the, um, in the valley. It was about one in the morning, and they reported seeing... Well, hearing first what sounded like an explosion, just a huge boom. And then they said from over the mountain came what appeared to be an, a yellow ball crackling with electricity. And they claim it lit the entire 10 mile long valley up like daylight at one in the morning. And they said it took, 
uh, 30 seconds, something like that, to traverse from one side of the valley to the other. And then it, it disappeared. But again, I, I, I had a hard time investigating this because I was threatened by one of the people involved. Um, I turned up at his house to ask him some questions and, and uh, I was told, I haven't talked about this since then. I don't intend to talk about it now. And don't you dare tell anyone you spoke to me. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I finally actually got a little bit of information, but most of which was what I've described. But the thing that I found particularly interesting was they said it, they felt like it was conscious, this thing that they saw. Mm-hmm. Now, the fellow, I, I found this on an old website, like we're talking like early web. And so when I contacted the guy who had originally put it up, he, he was not the experiencer. He was their, uh, I want to say their, their immediate superior. And he said, he, pardon me, he claimed to have been contacted by a researcher from UC Berkeley who, who specialized in uh, Tesla. And this researcher claims that what he saw was actually the testing of an energy weapon of Tesla's design put into, um, uh, created rather, or built by a Japanese company who had bought up a bunch of his, uh, a bunch of his documentation. He, they claimed this weapon had been built in rural Australia and then fired. And that's what he had seen. But when I spoke to the fellows involved, the actual witnesses, they said, no, they said, I, I've heard that theory because our boss told us that, but it felt alive. I felt like it was looking at us. Yeah, that's <laughs> sort of a handful of, of the UFO encounters. And bear in mind, Revelstoke has never embraced this stuff. 95% of, of what's in that book is new. It's not known. People don't go around talking about this stuff. And in some cases, I really had to pry it out of people. And there are still stories. There's a whole chapter at the back called Whispers. And it's literally one and two line summaries of stuff I was I was able to find, of, pardon me, to kind of hear, but not flesh out because someone wouldn't talk to me or someone was dead. Uh, I mean, there was a fellow who was an elder at the, um, the I want to say Mormon church. No, the Jehovah's Witness Church in Revelstoke. And apparently he had had oh, dozens, if not hundreds, of UFO encounters in the region over the years, which, of course, uh, his religion, you taught him, was Satan. So he was very, very reluctant to talk about it. But I think he died about two months before I started researching it, so I was never able to hear any of those. And so what's in the book, I think, is a fraction of what's out there. It's just a matter of, of getting Revelstoke to open up about it, which even now is a challenge. Why do, why do you think people are so reluctant to talk about it? You know, there, there are a lot of towns, you know, we've got Kingston, Ontario, you have Salem, Massachusetts, that really uh, revel in their paranormal uh, history and folklore and their high strangeness. And you think that a place that, you know, might want to get some tourist dollars in, might might want people to come in and, you know, there might be a, you know, a little new age shop, you know, that would uh, yeah. cater, cater to this sort of thing and sell your book. Funny right? enough, yeah, it's, it's even hard to find in Revelstoke right now, actually. Wow, it's lying in people's bird cages, apparently. <laughs> it, 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 I don't think we sold enough copies to line bird cages, but okay, maybe maybe small smaller animals. Well, you know, you sold one because I bought it. Someone just ordered one through our web store, so two, I guess, two. Attaboy. That was your mom. <laughs> oh, no, no, definitely not. Okay, I had a radio show on local radio for two years before she realized it. So, uh, oh, good, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I have two answers. And one is that Revelstoke, I think like a lot of small towns, has a kind of streak of fatalism in it. 
Okay. You know, when I was digging through old newspapers trying to research this thing, I found an article from 62 when they opened Rogers Pass. And uh, it said, we were unprepared. And they said, you know, we built this new highway or the government built this new highway. And we decided that we didn't need to build any more gas stations or hotels because who's going to come on? Who's, who's going to drive this highway? It's This is all nonsense. This is all pie in the sky. And of course, oh, wow, we, we chopped four and a half hours off this arduous journey. Of course, more people are going to travel. So Revelstoke was just completely unprepared. Mm. And so I, I think there's this small town sense of fatalism. Like, well, who cares? You know, this is, we're going to do the thing we've always done because by God, we can rely on that. So we're a ski town, we're a, we're a mill town, and we're a, we're a railroad town. And um, sec- and th- there's a second, uh, maybe a slightly more conspiracy-minded take on it. N- not human conspiracy, but I think that whatever's in Revelstoke, uh, I don't think it wants the attention. Hmm. And you're you referring know. to that that Zaw-like creature. I don't or know. It, or, or, or empty, maybe. Or... Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm never going to try and tell you that I, I know more than I do. And as far as it goes, I can't tell you exactly what it is. I just think that uh, something there doesn't want the attention. Hmm. You know, and, and I know ever since I released the book, it has been harder and harder for me to go home. You know, again, I've, I've been living on the coast a long time now, but, uh, I, you know, I like to go back and see my family. But the last few years, I mean, quite apart from the fact that, you know, I invested in a business that cratered, so I'm, I'm much more broke than I used to be. Uh, it's just harder to stay there. It's harder for me mentally to stay there. And I don't feel necessarily as safe as I once did being out alone at night, which used to be my bread and butter. You know, again, I go for drives. I like to take night pictures. But um, the aspect of Revelstoke has changed for me. And so it's not... Uh, and part of that, you know, just the town itself has changed. You know, I went through a, a major transition after I moved away, but um, I think there's something else there. And I think the town doesn't want that kind of attention. Would you consider uh, it's sort of a, a vibration uh, you had mentioned uh, in, in it's, is it more of a, uh, a vibration that affects people or do you think it's an actual creature or a, a strong spirit or i think both yeah yeah i think both i think there is a vibe. i think there's a strongly negative vibe there and part of that again i think it's just that working class mill town thing right you know I, I think that again that's sort of fatalistic well this is all there is you know and, and i mean when i was growing up in revelstoke you know uh the, the highest aspiration my family had for me was a waiter in a nice restaurant you know, <laughs> because the tips are good and, and that's, you know, that's not a dig at them. That's just like, I remember being told that, you know, hey, maybe you get a job at a nice restaurant. The tips are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, again, Revelstoke has changed a lot. Uh, you know, the, the, the arrival of the ski hill, or rather the development of the ski hill, really brought a lot of new blood into the city. But it still has that, it still, it rather retains some of that resistance to change. And so I, I think part of it is just, you know, again, you find this in any, in sort of any working class town with, precarious economic prospects because the forestry industry has, you know, obviously changed significantly over the last 10 years and will continue to change with climate change. Uh, and, and the railroad in- industry has changed as well. I won't get into that. I won't bore you, but so I think that's part of it. Um, but I think also, yeah, I think there is sort of an, uh, an influence of, of energy uh, that uh, it, it, it's, I do think vibration is part of it. I think it kind of unsettles things. Right. A negative you know, vibe. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, and for example, the, the thing south of the river, again, I, I can't get into the, the specifics of it for various legal reasons, but mm-hmm. um, I remember one night, uh, one night I drove south of town with a friend. This is when I was back visiting. Now, Revelstoke, if you drive south of town on the west side, sorry, the east side of the river, that road eventually dead ends. That used to go all the way south. That'd be all these, these drowned communities I'm talking about. But now it just dead ends. And for a long time, the paved road ends at what's called Greenslide, which is, is a road. So I, at night, if I'm out for my drive, you go down to the end of the paved road and you turn around. And it's always extraordinarily dark down there. You know, and when I say dark, I mean, not just a, an absence of light. I mean, it's, it's darker than it should be. But one night I was out with a friend and we went down a green slide getting ready to turn around. And I realized, no, it's, it's actually crazy bright. I'd never seen it so bright down there. And so I thought, well, let's go check it out. Let's see what the river Valley looks like at, at nighttime. So we very slowly and carefully drove down this dirt road. And again, it was beautiful. I'd never seen it. So unimpressive down there. It just felt like any other place at night, you know, and we eventually the, the Valley opened up and it's this, or the, the trees opened up and it's this gorgeous, you know, river Valley. And you could see all the way down to the, to the end, sort of the vanishing point, And it was just beautiful starry night. And that now my friend is not at all sensitive to this stuff. She's very much just not that way inclined, but as we're sitting there in the car, just looking down this Valley, the best way I can describe it is like something had been gone and then noticed we were there. And I could say that because darkness started flooding up the valley like a physical thing, like filling up a cup, like a tide returning. This darkness started flooding up the valley. And I said to my friend, well, we should, we should go. And I didn't say why. And so we should go. We turned around, started driving. And I was obviously agitated, but I didn't say anything. Uh, but the darkness overtook us. It was just, it was traveling too fast. I don't know what the speed of dark is, but it's fast. And my friend, again, who's completely unsensitive to this stuff, or maybe not completely, but very close. When it overtook us, she looked funny and she said, something isn't right, is it? I said, yeah, no, it's, it's not, it's not, but we're almost out of here. And eventually we drove closer to town and and everything was fine, but I'd never seen darkness move like that, actually move to fill up the space. Again, it was, it was almost like we'd stepped in a web and stirring that string woke up or alerted whatever had been away that it had company mm. and we are not welcome. And I, I don't think it works that way for everyone down there, but I have this again, kind of running theory that there is a certain combination of factors, the, the totality, which I don't know, but it, it, it pings this thing and, and it responds in various ways. So mm. I, I, and I, and that's that along with other things, which I mean, I could tell you when we're not recording, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's what's led me to believe there is something in the River Valley. And when I discovered this, these legends of this Zaw thing, I thought, well, it sounds very similar to what, you know, to what has been described. And the, the, the River Valley thing is also interesting. But, um, yeah, so I think that's part of it. And then I think, again, the, the water, the mountains are very powerful. You know, the... Uh, the Absolutely. Mountain, it's like 90, 
I want to say we have about the rubble stooks at 1500 feet elevation and the mountain ascends to 9,000. So you've got a massive amount of rock face staring at you. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. You're listening to Phantom Faction Podcast. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com. Are you tired of stale grocery store coffee? Mm-hmm. Then you need to check out Rampage Coffee. It's roasted fresh to order and delivered to your doorstep anywhere in Canada and the United States. It's delicious, and they have a high-caffeine blend called C4 that will blast you out of your morning slippers. Oh, wow. Get free shipping in Canada on their sampler bundle to try all four of their fantastic blends using the code PHANTOM. Go to rampagecoffee.com today. You're listening to Phantom Faction Podcast with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Can we reflect on some of the uh, Sasquatch reports that you've had? Because, you know, British Columbia is really known for its, you know, Bigfoot uh, activity in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely, and- yeah. So Sasquatch reports in Revelstoke, they're not as heavy as, as you might think. Uh, but I found them going back as far as 1976, I want to say. There was a group of tree planters um, in the area. I don't can't recall specifically where, but they noticed enormous footprints and kind of, I want to say a feeling of dread in, when they were planting in a certain area. Uh, <clears throat> people have seen along the highway an enormous ape-like creature cross the road. In one case, it seemed to disappear over a cliff. And uh, the, the, the witnesses actually pulled over to the side of the road and, and like stuck their heads over the edge. Because they thought, oh, well, you know, I want to see where this thing went. And their theory was that it had somehow swung into a cave they couldn't see or, or something like this. But regardless, they had seen it. It had stopped traffic. And then it had disappeared. Uh, the only report I found from someone I know was from an old school friend who now works, I believe, as a forester. So he, he knows the woods. And he was headed to work early one morning drinking his coffee. And he spotted something by the side of the road. Now, at first he thought it was a bear because he had hit a bear on that road, uh, you know, I want to say about a month before, and it was a real bad, real bad deal for everyone around. So he slowed down. Now, the thing didn't cross the road, but him slowing down allowed him to get a much clearer look at it. And that's when he realized that, well, it's pro- not a bear because it's, it's standing on its hind legs. It's about five feet tall, has this long, stringy, matted hair, it's a few inches long and it's using its hand to lean against the tree. And he saw this thing, it saw him and almost like it lost interest. He said the thing p- used the tree to pivot and turn while on its hind legs. So he said it wasn't like a bear. Bears don't do that. He said it, it sort of rotated its hand, gripped the tree and used it to pivot and started walking on its hind legs into the bush. And then it just disappeared into the brush. But uh, again, this guy knows the woods. He knows animals. And he said that is not a bear. It's not a bear with mange. It's just something that is thickly muscled, built like a short human. And it, it, as I said, it rotated its wrist, grabbed the tree, and used the tree to sort of leverage itself back up and around and off into the bush once it had seen him. But he was going maybe... 40 kilometers an hour, which is, you know, not very fast. I want to say that's about, what, 20, 20 miles an hour, something like that. Mm-hmm. So we had some time to see it. And then that's what he saw. Hmm. 
And there are other stories as well. There's these really interesting kind of anecdotal reports of what's called the Mount Begbie Iceman. And Mount Begbie is this massive uh, triple peak glacier um, just on the west side of town. It's probably the most iconic image of Revelstoke. You know, I think it's, there are images of it in the Library of Congress. And there for years, there's been a story that there is an Iceman up there frozen in ice. And it was uncovered a few you know, years ago that the whole story was made up by a guy named Arvid Lundell, who was the newspaperman at the time. And he claimed to have made the story up to drive traffic to Revelstoke. However, I found record of a professor named James Dixon, who is an archaeo, I want to say an archaeobotanist. Uh, I might be right. But his whole thing is, is frozen, men frozen in ice. And so he actually went to Rebel, he was, pardon me, he was giving a talk and a woman said, my father actually went up the mountain and saw this thing. It was before Arvid Lundell said he'd even, before he came around, it was around the turn of the 20th century, I want to say. But he claims to have climbed the mountain and seen this man frozen in ice long before it was invented for the newspaper. So she told him this and, and uh, he was giving a time, pardon me, at the time he was giving a lecture on another ice man. So he was Scottish, but he actually came to Revelstoke and he, you know, uh, rented a helicopter and they did several trips around the mountain. He did a lot of historical research with the help of the local uh, museum. And according to him, and I, I've spoken to him on the phone and his, his interview is recorded in, in strange. He says, there is no reason for someone to go up the mountain. He, he never actually went up there himself, but he said the mountain to go up the mountain is to only go up the mountain. You know, it's not on the way to anywhere else. So it's very unlikely that someone would have gone up there frozen to death and stayed. He said, there's just no reason for them to go up there. But again, the fact remains that the story of its existence predates the invention of it or alleged invention of it for the newspaper. So there's yet another man-like figure, which is in a place it should not be. But again, the, the existence is, is sort of very much unknown. I love these, uh, you know, I love the cryptid stuff. I love the the mystery around it. And Are you working on another book at all? No, not presently. The show keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> and I like doing research firsthand. I like doing in-person interviews. I like doing phone interviews. And, and that's just time-consuming. And especially right now, the way things are, uh, you know, in-person interviews are not happening. No, but, um, I, d I have started a website to kind of collate the continuing stories of Revelstoke. Mm -hmm. So if you go to uh, hauntedrevelstoke.com or strangelittleplace.com, they'll both take you to the same place. And when I do get reports now from the Revelstoke area, they go there. And so I've, I've found, uh, the most recent one actually is a quasi cryptid story. It, it sort of continues a theme we, I established in the book, which is gremlins, these tiny, tiny shadow creatures that seem to flit in and out of vision and seem to cause electrical hassle, you know, sort of minor inconvenience and can apparently be placated with offerings. Mm. But uh, someone wrote to me just before Halloween to say they had been hiking near Begbie Falls, which is again, south of town. And they had seen on the way there, these little black flashes just constantly, them, them and their partner were just skittering, you know, across the road in and out of vision, N not mice, not animals just these black flashes. And so, yeah, so th there's things like that. Again, it's a strange little place or hauntedrevelstoke.com. And uh, as reports come in, they're mentioned there. And there are definitely more cryptid reports in Revelstoke. 
you know, there was a lake monster site in the Arrow Lakes. Uh, there have been, I want to say other things. Uh, I just can't remember off the top of my head. Any reports of little people in the forest? Um, no, not, a, or, not that I'm aware of. Puck wedgies or something like that. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing I'm specifically aware of yet. But again, that's, um, I, a lot of these stories are kind of, yeah, people hold, hold them close to their chest, you know, unless you happen to get them on a good day and, and they're feeling open about it. Right. Uh, it can be tough to, to shake stuff loose. Cause I mean, I, again, the book's been out for four years. It's, you know, we sold a few thousand copies and it's out there, you know, it's out in the world, but, um, it never really shook any more stories loose. Hmm. It's always been kind of a, kind of a struggle to get them out of people. Like I love the cryptid stuff. I love the UFO stuff. This, this Zaw type um, anomaly just fascinates me. But uh, things that I do remember from your book are the hauntings, oh, yeah. um, the ghosts that reside in this town. Can you, can you tell us one of the, uh, the more well-known or creepier ghost stories? Well, um, the only really well-known story from the book was the haunting of Holton House. And Holton House is this uh, pretty large Queen Anne-style home uh, situated atop what's called Farwell Hill. And Farwell Hill, that area, is sort of nearish to the courthouse. And that is, without a doubt, the most densely haunted part of town. It's this plateau overlooking <clears throat> what's known as Lower Town. And, yeah, it's, it's again, the, the most haunted part of town. And Holton House has, has stories going back as far as the 50s that I could find. There's something on the stairs that people see unnerves them, sometimes pushes them down the stairs. And there is a, a male ghost, which seems, or a male presence, I should say. I'm not a big fan of the word ghost, that terrorizes women, especially if they enter certain parts of the house, which it deems to be his. There was a couple I interviewed, and they said that uh, whenever she was alone, she had to sort of stick to certain rooms because she felt like this thing would rush at her screaming. And of course it wasn't audible, but it was like standing in front of someone who's screaming at you. She said, you just felt this presence right up in your face. Mm. And people have, you know, again, there are variations on that. I, I myself got to view the house in yeah, sometime in 2013, maybe. And I didn't feel much until I went up into the attic. And when I went up into the attic, oh man, was like the way I described it in the book. I think in the book I attribute the story to someone else because I was very, I was very cons very nervous about associating with this kind of stuff back then. <clears throat> you know, I'm a very different person now. But, um, anyways, the feeling I describe is 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 if you were walking on a dark night, and you stop to tie your shoes, and as you do, the moon comes out, and you see that you stopped just short of falling about thirty feet to your death. That sort of gut punch, woo, feeling. That's what I felt walking up the stairs into the massive attic at Holton House. And when I say massive, I mean, there used to be a full-size basketball hoop up there. It's, it's a big, big attic. So that is, that is the most famous haunting in Revelstoke. But I'll tell you something that most people don't know. And, well, still don't know. And, and I've only just learned a little more about this. There is a commonality to, Revels, to dreams about Revelstoke. And, and the, the, the true depth of this, we just don't have, we won't, we won't have the time to get into but one part of that is that more than one person has dreamed of Holtness, and in their dreams, there are bodies either buried or stored on one particular part of the property where, as far as records indicate, there have never been any bodies stored or buried. But three different people 
have come to me separately, telling me various dreams, all of which center around the, I want to say the north side of the property and these dreams about corpses. And hmm. it could absolutely be coincidence, but it's quite the coincidence if it is. Thank you for so much for joining us. Um, strange little place. Uh, how can people get a hold of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon. You can buy, or you can buy signed copies at ghoststorygues.bigcartel.com. All right. And uh, your podcast? Uh, yep. We're the Ghost Story Guys podcast. We release every week and we are at ghoststoryguys.com and everywhere fine podcasts live. All right. And your websites that you mentioned before? Yes. Uh, yep. If, if you want to find out what's continuing to happen in the Revelstoke area, as far as the paranormal goes, go to Haunted Revelstoke or hauntedrevelstoke.com or strangelittleplace.com. And you can find me on social media at both at Largely the Truth on both Instagram and Twitter. What about you, Rachel? Anything? Uh, picking up on anything? Rachel's yeah. our psych- <laughs> Rachel's our psychic our psychic medium. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. And it's funny. Like I wrote down at the beginning of the podcast that you were an answer seeker, which you pretty much all said that as you kept going on, and I kept getting like crickets. So it's like Jiminy Cricket. You're like the Jiminy Cricket to the town. Um, I feel, (laughs) I feel like, like the town folks almost walked around with blank faces or, or, um, blanket minds. I kept getting like blanket minds. So, um, it's like, you're actually taking those blankets away, but some you'll never get that. They'll keep those blank faces, but there are the few that the the blanket minds can be removed from. That's the weirdest thing I've gotten, but that's what I kept getting with just sitting here listening to your stories. I get kind of lost too. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Very cool. Brennan, it sounds like we're going to have to have you back uh, in the near future because it seems like you've got tons of stories and, you know, there's there's more things coming up. And But thank, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. That was great. Thanks so much. Phantom Faction Podcast, a podcast to educate, entertain, assist, and guide anyone involved or interested in the paranormal. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com.